We the people. We the people. We the people of the United States. We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. To ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. In the summer of 1787, 55 men would gather in Philadelphia. They were tasked with fixing the government of the United States of America. Over the course of four months, they would debate, argue, refine and prepare the first document of its kind in the history of mankind. An attempt to prove that men can rule themselves by law. Over the next three years, the 13 United States would debate the ratification. This is the story of those men and of those times. It is a look at the ideas, the concepts, the debates, and the history of the Constitution of the United States. This is Constitution Thursday. On October the 22nd of the year 1787, there appeared in the newspapers of Massachusetts, the first of a short series of letters opposing ratification of the new constitution. The letters were well written, very calm and argued that while a strong national government was needed, the proposed government would take away liberties, which for he and others, were all that they had. The letters were signed, John D. Witt. Who was he? And why did he choose that particular pen name? To this day, no one is certain. But he brought to the debate the idea of slow deliberation, rather than passion and heat. Imagine, if you will, picking up your local newspaper, turning to the opinion section, and there you see a rather lengthy editorial, a letter, written to, well, published in the paper, but really written to the people of your, your area, detailing an argument about an issue, pick an issue, it doesn't really matter. Uh, here in our local area, it could be measure G, but uh, for the purposes of national uh, politics, we'll pick the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, okay? Just, just purely as an example, we're not going to discuss the TPP, we're just going to discuss uh, that as an example issue, which may or may not, depending on which side of the agreement you're on, be a treaty, or it may not be a treaty, who knows? And the letter writer takes a good deal of time, energy, and effort to argue his position, or her position as the case may be, about this particular document, this particular agreement, and whether or not it's good or bad. The writer takes the time to go all the way back into the history of the United States to talk about how these types of agreements are reached and what the traditions have been and what the history of such agreements has been, and then contrasts the current agreement, the current TPP, with these other agreements that may or may not have been successful. The point of the, of the letter, the point of the argument, is to try to sway listeners or readers, as the case may be, to get involved and to express to uh, those that are tasked with making the decision on this particular agreement to 
adhere to their personal beliefs and to the writer's personal beliefs. In today's world, the letter would be signed by, uh, since letters to the editor are, are very rarely published anonymously, would be signed by the person who wrote it, and it would list uh, the city. So it would say, you know, Dave Bowman, Manteca, California, or it would say uh, Ted Smith, Baltimore, Maryland, or whatever. This letter, however, dealing with international agreements that affect the Western Hemisphere of the, of the world, is signed by James Monroe. Now, if you're savvy, you would see that name and you might say to yourself, oh, that guy has the same name as a president. Or if you're not perhaps familiar with, with James Monroe, you might say to yourself, oh, I wonder who Jim Monroe is. What, is. what does he know? That's the first question I ask when I read uh, letters to the editor, when I see who wrote them, is I ask, well, what's their particular interest in this, in this particular subject? Why do they care? Uh, by way of example, there was a letter in our local paper here uh, blasting those who are questioning Measure G, and it was signed by uh, an individual who I happen to know is a city employee, or was a city employee some years ago. It changes how you view their, their position on the matter. In this particular case of our example, it might occur to you that perhaps this person is using a pen name James Monroe to make a point. Monroe, of course, established the Monroe Doctrine, which essentially uh, told European countries and other nationalities to to stay out of the affairs of the Western Hemisphere, that this was the American sphere of influence, and therefore we would handle these things. And you might say to yourself, well, given his or her position on this matter, uh, perhaps he is drawing from history to indicate a position which people who are familiar with that position would go, oh, I get it, I see what he's doing here. Without using his or her real name, he's drawn a name from history to draw attention to his position. This would almost never occur today. Uh, the, the idea of writing under a pen name for letters to the editor is something that I happen to know uh, newspaper editors abhor. They just they don't like that, they don't want that. In fact, uh, I have it personally from at least one editor who spends a good deal of time rejecting letters that he feels the signatures upon are either fake or uh, aren't complete or, or that sort of thing. They want more information before they will, before they will publish said letter. But in the 1780s and well into the 1800s, the process by which opinions were published was much different than the way it is today. In fact, uh, you didn't have editorial boards for newspapers and the sorts of things like we have today where they write the editorial board's position um, and occasionally even give a rebuttal. In, in that era, it was un, not uncommon for someone writing such a letter, such an opinion piece for a newspaper, to sign the letter using a name, a pen name, that reflected the tradition that he or she was trying, and in most cases he, was trying to, to uphold or trying to demonstrate. And so it is that when we come to the Federalist Papers, they're signed uh, by Publius uh, primarily, the idea of the bringing in the idea of the Roman republicanism and, and sorts of things like that. The Anti-Federalist Papers, as we've already learned, we, the letter from the Federal Farmer, we have no clear indication of who the Federal Farmer was, but we get his indication that he was uh, someone who believed very fervently in the ideals of the Revolution 
and staying close to the earth. On October 22nd, 1787, the first of a very short series of letters uh, appeared. In fact, these letters are, they're known to us. I mean, we, we, we have uh, at least three of them. We, but they're, they're virtually unknown to people. And I'm, and I'm kind of intrigued as to why. But these letters are known as the John DeWitt letters. They're signed John DeWitt, who is uh, an interesting pen name to use in arguing against the ratification of the Constitution. Now, John DeWitt, to our understanding of this, to you and I today, to read a letter from one John DeWitt would not really raise much of an eyebrow to us. We would read these letters today. and. If you read the DeWitt letters, you will find them to be, I find them to be very thoughtful, very cogent, and I find them to be the strongest of all the arguments of the anti-federalist position. The, the federal farmer argues from passion. DeWitt argues from dispassion and from logic. He makes the point that the Constitution is the right idea, but the wrong methodology which would not be an unusual position. Certainly, uh, this would be the position of Mason and some of the other uh, folks who did not sign the Constitution at the convention. They like the ideas, they like the direction, they dislike the methodology. And John DeWitt, in his letters, makes that point. And by choosing the pen name John DeWitt, he harkens back to someone who most colonials would be very familiar with. If you go back in English history, of course, and, and up until 7, July 4, 1776, the American colonists were Englishmen. This was their primary complaint, is that they were English. Uh, as I mentioned the other day on my show, that the, the biggest difference really between the American colonies and most of the other British colonies was that wherever you went, the British colonies were essentially indigenous people who had been subjugated and subsequently became uh, fealty to the crown. This was not the case in the 13 American colonies. These were primarily Englishmen who had come from England, settled a new land, and considered themselves very English, were very steeped in English traditions and English history, understood these things, and particularly uh, appreciated the idea of, of liberty because of their uh, natural instincts and, and from whence they had come. Remember that the Puritans uh, were the original founders in, in Massachusetts Bay Colony were in fact the Cromwellians of, of recent demise in England. And the Cromwellians, of course, had been anti-disestablishmentarianists. They had been anti the king. They, they got rid of the crown and replaced it with uh, a, a quasi and I'll, I'll use that term very loosely, quasi-Republican government. Uh, it was not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but it was the first steps in moving towards uh, a free and independent person as opposed to a subjugated person. The Americans of 1787 knew very well who John DeWitt was in history. John DeWitt was, in fact, a Dutchman who had served many years before in the 1600s in Holland's, the Netherlands, first real foray into a republic as opposed to a monarchy. 
Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on the history of Holland here, uh, but John DeWitt was a leader who also understood, he was also a pragmatist, he was also a very rich man, he was a merchant class, as many Americans of that era were. He appealed to the populist person, to the, to the people that, that understood that we had fought hard for our liberties, and while some compromise was necessary to the preservation of all the rights, there was important that those compromises be very carefully considered. One of the things that John DeWitt, the original, the Dutch John DeWitt did, was he allowed Cromwell uh, to insert in one of the peace treaties between Holland and uh, England that William would never be made stadtholder in, 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 in Holland. Uh, he was the great, or the grandson of the executed Charles, and he was concerned that if such, such a thing became uh, the Stadtholder, which is essentially the king of, of Holland at that point, he would have a legitimate claim to the English throne. And he actually had that secretly inserted, and, and John DeWitt agreed to that uh, because he was not a monarchist. He believed in the Republic. Uh, of course, history didn't quite work out that way, but, you know, that's the way things go sometimes. But it was his pragmatism and his recognition that the greater good of society required sometimes the submission of some precious rights in order to preserve the rest. In fact, John DeWitt, the anti-federalist, will later write in one of his letters, quote, a people entering into society surrender such a part of their natural rights as shall be necessary for the existence of that society. They are so precious in themselves that they would never be parted with did not the preservation of the remainder require it. They are entrusted into the hands of those who are very willing to receive them, who are naturally fond of exercising them, and whose passions are always striving to make a bad use of them. To John DeWitt, the anti-federalist, drawing from the experience of John DeWitt, the Republican, there were really no good expansions of government. It didn't really matter how far you went, at some point government was going to abuse those rights. And so while he understood that republicanism was the way to go, and John DeWitt would write this, while he understood that the necessity for a strong central government was imperative, he wrote, upon the whole, my fellow countrymen, I am as much a federal man as any person. In the federal union lies our political salvation to preserve that union and make it respectable to foreign optics. The national government ought to be armed with all necessary powers. But, there's that big, you know, comma, semicolon, but, the subject I conceive of infinite delicacy and requires both ability and reflection. The DeWitt letters, to me, drawing on that name John DeWitt, who was a very adept politician and a very adept person at trying to protect the liberties and the republicanism of Holland against the intrusions of what was perceived as uh, an overbearing England. Now imagine that in 1780. Uh, keep in mind that, you know, like Holland, which had won its freedom mm -hmm. from England, uh, the United States had just won its freedom from England as well. And so there, there's a historical parallel there that you need to get into your head as you read these letters. He, he understands that we need a strong national government. 
the the part of the DeWitt letters that amazes me though is that rather than simply decrying the ideas that are in the Constitution and many of the anti-federalist positions that we saw in the Federalist Farmer and as we're going to see in some of the other letters uh, do uh, really lambaste the the loss of liberties the the DeWitt letters don't necessarily take that tact in fact what he encourages people to do over and over again is to actually take the time to read the anti-federalist letters to to consider these things because if we don't he writes at one point well if thoroughly looked into before it's adopted, the people will more apt approve of it in practice. Every man is a traitor to himself and his posterity who shall ratify it with his signature without first endeavoring to understand it. His plea is something that I feel most passionately. Uh, I, I've mentioned on numerous occasions on my show and uh, in conversations on uh, social media and the like, that my biggest frustration today is people who ascribe to the Constitution and ascribe to the framers interpretations of positions that never existed and, and are, are completely false. Whether that position is uh, you're anti-gun and so you believe that militias are, are, are the way to go and, and, and I had that discussion over the weekend uh, with a relative, or whether you believe that the uh, First Amendment doesn't protect certain types of speech, whatever the position may be, if you don't understand what the framers and what the subsequent, uh, and, and, and I would refer to them as framers as well, the, the, the writers of the amendments, meant and what they were trying to accomplish, if you haven't taken the time to study what they said, how can you ascribe to them a position? If we learned nothing else in our study of the convention, one of the things that, we, that I carry with me right now, in deeply ingrained in me, is the realization that one of the things that we get wrong, particularly on the, the conservative right, is that the framers we most adore, most venerate, clearly held positions that we would not agree with today. The fact of the matter is, is that Madison, the follow, father of the Constitution, uh, Washington, some of these other guys, Franklin, were not in favor of what would eventually become the Tenth Amendment. They were not in favor of so-called states' rights. They wanted in Madison at one point, Hamilton at one point said it, they do away with the states, replace them with the national government. This isn't Dave's opinion. This isn't what I think. This is what they said. Does that ring with us when we talk today about, you know, the framing fathers and we want to get back to the constitutional and, and to the originalist compromise was made? DeWitt's letters urge each and every member of the public in Massachusetts, because DeWitt's letters were written uh, to, the, to the citizens of Massachusetts, to carefully consider, carefully consider what is going on here. He makes an appeal that I find particularly intriguing. He talks about the fact that America is unlike any other nation on earth. All the other nations on earth spent centuries developing themselves. Uh, England, he appeals to English history and he talks, you know, he, he, he hearkens back to the fact that England has gone through centuries of bloodshed and centuries of, of argument and fighting and debating and, and, and death and destruction to reach the point of civilization where it has today. 
France has done so, Russia has done so, all these other countries have experienced all this, but not America. America came into being as a civilized society and has benefited basically from day one with education and with, with sciences and technologies. And because of this, we're in a unique position in history to understand why these things are so important. And he also appeals to the idea of the revolution, the idea of liberty and justice for all, that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by their creator with unalienable rights. And he mentions at one point, and I, and I find this to be moving in a way that even if I had even if I had been opposed to him in 1787 and I'm not sure anymore once upon a time somebody asked me Dave would you have been a federalist or an anti-federalist and at the time I answered I would have been a federalist now I'm not so sure having gone through the convention I'm not so sure that I would have been not for the reasons that I don't want a strong central government like John DeWitt here but because I have concerns about where, where we're going the methodology he appeals back, John DeWitt, the writer, appeals back. And he says at one point, we don't really have, myself and others, we, we don't really have anything left except for the liberties that we won and fought hard for. The indication being that perhaps Mr. DeWitt, the writer, is in fact a, a veteran of the, of the American Revolutionary War. He understands that for most Americans, literally all that is left for them is the unalienable rights endowed to them by their creators. And there's almost a, an appeal to the understanding that if we give up these rights, if we surrender some of these rights to preserve all of them, the rights that we surrender are going to be used against us. They're going to be abused. And we better make sure that if we give up some of these rights, that we give them up for the right reasons. In discussing points of such moment, he writes, America has nothing to do with passions or hard words. Every citizen has an undoubted right to examine for himself. Neither he to, neither should he be ill-treated or abused because he does not think at the same moment exactly as we do. This is before the Bill of Rights, folks. And he's talking about freedom of expression. It is true that many of us have but our liberties to lose, but they are dearly bought and not the least precious in estimation. In the meantime, it is not of infinite consequence that we pursue inflexibility that path which I feel persuaded we are now approaching, wherein we shall discourage all foreign importations, shall see the necessity of greater economy and industry, shall smile upon the husbandman, and reward the industrious mechanic, shall promote the growth of our country, and wear the produce of our own farms, and finally, shall support measures in proportion to their honesty and wisdom, without any respect to men. Nothing more is wanted to make us happy at home, and respectable abroad. There's nothing here in what DeWitt says that runs counter to the ideas of the preamble of the Constitution or the very purposes of the Constitution. If you hearken back all the way to Edmund Randolph's first speech, where he outlines all the problems that the nations are facing, DeWitt agrees. Yes, we're facing these problems. 
but at least in his first letter, what he asks of the people of Massachusetts is that they carefully consider these things. They dis dispassionately take all the anger out of it. Take all of the, the star-struckness out of it. At one point, he talks about the fact that there are some who say that because of who wrote this constitution, this proposed constitution, the, the wisdom of the, of the men assembled, we should, we should just simply accept it as sterling because it's, you know, comes from men who are wise, Washington, Hamilton, Madison, Franklin. But he argues against that, saying they're men, just like you and I, just like every American citizen in this country. They're just men. And we need to carefully consider their position. We need to carefully consider whether or not the apparent subjugation of some rights is worth the preservation of the rest. And will it even accomplish this and provide for us all the things that will make us happy at home and respectable abroad? His letters are fascinating. I mean, they really are. He... Uh, he does get into some hyperbole, and 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 you don't want to uh, you don't want to miss this. We're told by some people he wrote that upon adopting this new government, we are to become everything in a moment. Our foreign and domestic debts will be as a feather. Our ports will be crowded with ships of all the world, soliciting our commerce and produce. Our manufacturers will increase and multiply. And in short, if we stand still, our country, notwithstanding, will be like the blessed Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey. But let us not deceive ourselves. The only excellency of any government is in exact proportion to the administration of it. Idleness and luxury will be as much a bane as ever. Our passions will be equally at war with us then as now. And if we have men among us trying with all their ability to undermine our present constitution, the Articles of Confederation, these very persons will direct their force to sap the vitalness of the new one. He urges people to be considerate and to understand human nature and to understand that changing the form of government isn't going to be a panacea. It's not going to immediately solve all of the problems. Maybe it's the right thing to do, but rather than rushing into it, let's take our time and consider it. And that signature harkens back to a time when a well-known person, a well-known Republican, a well-known anti-British politician led his nation to peace and prosperity by maintaining his government rather than changing it. DeWitt's letters hearken to the same call. Do we really need to do this is almost the impression that you will get. There will be Federalist Papers, particularly one through six that we'll get to, that will counter DeWitt's position. Yes, we, we do need to do these things. Even upon careful consideration, this is a better way to go. And we'll get there eventually. But for the moment, imagine if you will, and this is what's fascinating to me, the idea of politicians, leaders, men who have great influence setting that influence aside and penning letters to newspapers and to the public, arguing their position without giving away who they are, appealing to figures of history that encourage a certain understanding of the way things ought to be for them. And in doing so, getting none of the glory, 
none of the fame, none of the popularity that would normally go with such a, with such a speech, with such a involved event. Giving up the personal glory and gain for the betterment of the country, for a better decision for the country. Would never see anything like that today. Can't imagine the circumstances where we ever would. I'm not sure that a newspaper editor would ever publish something along the lines of the DeWitt letters of the Federalist Papers today, simply because uh, there would be too much concern about, well, who actually wrote it. And of course, in today's internet age, it'd be hard to, to cover those things up anyway. But it would be intriguing to see arguments done in this manner today instead of the way they were done, the way they were done over the Constitution. DeWitt's letters are fascinating. You should read them. Um, I'll post some links up to them on the fan on the page today, and you can get them as well. But as DeWitt closes his letter, upon the whole, my fellow countrymen, I am a federal man as much as any person. We need to carefully consider these things, and anyone who doesn't carefully consider them, any person who simply signs off on this without thinking, without understanding, is a traitor. And that's true even today. Constitution Thursday is a feature segment on Plausibly Live, the official podcast of The Dave Bowman Show, a Slippery Fish Entertainment production for the Podcast 99 Network, copyright MMXV, all rights reserved. For more information, log on to constitutionthursday.com.